Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. October 1977. A suspect unlike any other appeared in a Columbus courtroom in the state of Ohio on charges of several rape and forcible confinement of three young women that he had kidnapped a few months earlier in the parking lot of their university. His name, Billy Milligan. Upon closer inspection, the 23-year-old accused looked much like any other young man his age. Yet a series of thorough psychological examinations would reveal that Billy Milligan was not the person everyone thought he was, because in reality, there was not just one, but actually several Billys. Billy Milligan's story would send shockwaves throughout the United States, which would, for the first time, draw them into the depths of the mysterious and frightening dissociative personality disorder, which is otherwise known as multiple personalities. In Milligan, there were more than 20 completely different personalities, each with their own experiences and personal history, which alternatively manifested themselves and increasingly took over his being. Sometimes protective, and sometimes disruptive. Milligan even gave these alters, as science terms them, names, temperaments, and nationalities. They were girls or boys, Americans, British, or newly arrived from the USSR. They were called Adelana, Tommy, David, Christopher, Alan, Kristen, Daniel, Arthur, and Reagan Vedaskanovinik. Submitting to a kind of internal authority, they had to follow a strict code of conduct to favor the arts, letters, and sciences. Billy became their object and their toy, which they manipulated as they saw fit. And now, without any further delay, join us as we venture into the abyss of human psychology in order to gain a better understanding of Billy Milligan, the man with 24 personalities. It was September 1977, Police in Columbus, Ohio, had just gone to knock the door of William Milligan with an arrest warrant. The young man who opened the door seemed completely thrown aback when they announced that they had come to search his home and that he was charged with aggravated assault on three people that he had imprisoned in his basement and raped repeatedly. Milligan seemed to be taken by surprise. What rape? The three victims, friends and students at Ohio State University had made complaints against him and had proof to back it up. It was as if the 23-year-old young man had been stricken with amnesia. He could not remember anything, not a thing. He denied everything about being in the university campus parking lot and having kidnapped or raped girls. He felt like crying. 
The police didn't want to hear any of it. They simply went ahead and entered the house. Once the search had begun, it wasn't long before it bore fruit. In Milligan's basement, the police discovered a whole arsenal of revolvers, knives, cords, and masking tape, but also handbags and wallets, as well as other items belonging to the three victims. Now, the only thing that Milligan could do was to request a lawyer to guarantee his defense. He was immediately handcuffed and driven to the police headquarters. There, they took his photo and his fingerprints, and he was transferred to the state prison in Franklin that very same evening while he waited for his defense to be formed. As for the evidence which incriminated him, a fingerprint from the hood of the car of one of his victims was enough to implicate him. It is important to note that without the three rapes and the speedy and efficient intervention of the investigators, the story of Billy Milligan would certainly still have been unknown even today. His arrest would be the trigger to a unique investigation that beyond the legal implications would take on the dimension of a genuine psychological thriller. But let's return for a moment to the cold hallways and squeaking automatic doors of Franklin Prison. Billy had a very bad night, even if it wasn't the first time that he had to sleep in a cell. Just two years earlier, he had been arrested for armed robbery and sexual assault and had been incarcerated at the Lebanon Correctional Institution. Following his sentence, he was released with the order to report to the police headquarters every week. A few days after his release, he went back to his old ways by kidnapping the three students. Milligan whined, paced, and suffocated in his cell. He asked for cigarettes to be brought to him, and during the day, a warden caught him as he desperately tried to hang himself with a sheet and was stopped just in time. The Franklin Police Administration decided to bring Milligan before the psychiatric expert, Dr. Willis C. Driscoll, who would be the first in a long series of specialists confronted with the Milligan case. The analysis concluded that the prisoner suffered from acute schizophrenia accompanied by behavioral problems. Dr. Driscoll further added that Billy was also plagued by Ganser syndrome, a psychological disorder that manifests itself during the first few days or months of an individual's incarceration. But the penitentiary administration didn't stop there. Milligan continued to act out. In the days that followed his first interview with the psychologist, he made several other suicide attempts, all of which failed. Consequently, a second expert was called in, this time a woman named Dorothy Turner, right out of the Southwest Community Mental Health Center in Columbus. This young psychologist, who the prison administration had selected, was still a novice but seemed to be quite professional. She reviewed the report from her colleague, Dr. Driscoll, which not only outlined Milligan's pathology in detail, but also included the transcript with the moving and in-depth testimony from his three victims. Before meeting him, the expert psychologist thought that she would be dealing with a formidable aggressor and an intimidating and perverse sexual maniac. The young blonde man, with a gentle demeanor, lowered his gaze as the police officer made him sit on a chair in front of her. He radically changed all the preconceived notions that she had about him. He was nothing more than an adolescent, a poor, disoriented, and lonely adolescent. But there was no time for sentimentalism. That was not part of her job. She was there to speak with a dangerous sexual predator who continued to deny the charges that had been brought against him. Dr. Turner first asked Milligan the standard question to determine if he was of sound mind. She asked him his age, about his education, and the name of his parents. He answered all the questions precisely in a serious voice and was never evasive. 
When Dorothy asked him the number of his identity card, a small, childlike voice answered her, the voice of a sullen, angry little girl. Undaunted and believing that this was all an act, Turner reformed the question several times to see if Milligan wasn't simply trying to make fun of her by behaving this way. Yet, she continued to hear the same baby talk. The same thing. Little, obscenate, and impatient voice who responded in the negative. I'm Kristen, and I'm three years old. I don't know. Well, if you're Kristen, then what happened to Billy? Asked the psychologist. Billy? Blah, he's sleeping. Over the following days, Dorothy Turner discovered with amazement that there really were three identities before her, taking turns each time they came to speak with Billy. The one who seemed to dominate them all and to monopolize the conversation was surely Arthur, a British man with a very strong London accent who spoke of signs and letters who seemed to be very knowledgeable and could debate on several subjects. When Billy started frantically smoking cigarettes after cigarettes, Dorothy understood that this time she was with Ellen, a young, unruly, drug-addict artist who adored painting and made portraits. He emerged whenever it came to doing vile things and being a delinquent. Furthermore, he claimed that he was the one who incited Billy to rape the young women on the campus. Soon, Turner soon noticed that Alan took a malicious pleasure in taunting her and enjoying playing with her by indulging in dark humor, telling her dirty jokes, and doing other things that were in bad taste. The psychologist was both captivated and frightened by what she saw and heard. For the very first time in her short career, she was witnessing a spontaneous demonstration of disassociative personality disorder or multiple personality disorder. Turner would soon realize when speaking to Milligan almost every day that this pathology was characterized by one or several completely different personalities taking psychological and moral control over the afflicted subject. These personalities or entities could interact alternately or conversely and one could come to dominate over all the others. In fact, that would prove to be the case with the Londoner Arthur. The psychologist noted that he had a real talent as an orator and that he always wanted to show that he knew more than the others. Vocal, behavioral, or even physical changes occurred. In this case, the adult male, namely Milligan, could easily take on the voice of a little child or of a woman. This was what happened when little Christian got the upper hand. Always when Billy was at his worst or when he felt uncomfortable with the person speaking in front of him. Christian's answer were therefore always harmless but evasive and were intended to screen or shift attention from the question that was too embarrassing or too painful. Whenever Turner asked him to write something or to scribble on a piece of paper, Christian would say that she didn't know because she was dyslexic and besides, she was too little. But Dorothy Turner was increasingly plagued by doubt after having witnessed all these manifestations which were still new to her in her field. What if it was all a scam? She knew that Billy Milligan was very intelligent and that he could easily perfect this performance to simulate insanity and consequently evade a prison sentence. In order to clear away any shadow of a doubt, over the next few days, the psychologist decided to convene a small panel of Billy's lawyers, Gary Schweikart and Judy Stevenson, as well as the investigating judge in charge of the case, the prosecutor Bernie Yavich, and another famous specialist who had experience with this kind of phenomenon, Dr. Cornelia Wilbur. Dorothy Turner hoped that they would all witness the prisoners' various personalities just as she had during the previous days. The panel was initially skeptical, especially the judiciary represented by prosecutor Yavich, but they soon changed their minds. To alleviate any uncertainty, 
a camera was set up to film the interview behind closed doors. But Bernier Javich and his secretary witness made them fall out of their respective chairs. The day of the first session in fact turned out to be a disaster. Unable to manage his emotions and uncomfortable with being thrusted into the spotlight, Billy brandished Kristen like a shield who immediately started sobbing and crying loudly and noisily. Everyone present in the room was quite shaken by what they had just seen and heard. As long as Billy was unable to control Kristen, it was impossible to continue with the session. Psychoanalyst Cornelia Wilbur and psychologist Dorothy Turner, who were also present, tried as best as they could to console Kristen, but nothing seemed to help. Seeing this blurrily bearded man crying with the voice of a little three-year-old girl was something like out of a nightmare. During the next session, Milligan was asked, given his mental state, to refrain from or perhaps not even to take part at all in his trial if he did not feel up to it. And what if Milligan's evil originated in his childhood? To find out, let's take a look back to the late 1950s. Billy was born William Stanley Morrison on February 14, 1955 in Miami Beach, Florida. His parents were Dorothy Milligan and John Morrison. Dorothy had already been previously married to Shalmer Milligan and still used his name. Before touching down on the peaceful white sandy beaches of Florida, Dorothy Milligan spent her youth further north in the country in the cold and mountainous Ohio. She was a nightclub singer and that was how she made her living, much to the charging of all the men who wanted to share their lives with her and who wanted to forbid her from practicing a profession that they deemed too common and inappropriate for a wife. She met John Morrison at the end of 1940s. They married and had three children, William, also known as Billy, James, also known as Jim, and Kathy Joe. But soon the relationship with her and Morrison proved to be disastrous both on the home front as well as financially. Undoubtedly, this marriage was a complete failure and not at all compatible with this woman who was so used to nightlife, having a microphone in her hand and an audience to applaud her after every show. Furthermore, John had become increasingly morose, plagued by depression and unable to pay their household expenses. His three children exasperated him and each birth sunk the household deeper into debt. Moreover, the idea of having a big family never really excited him. If it were up to him, they wouldn't have had any children, but Dorothy had always done what she pleased. The Morrison family's finances worsened when John started drinking and gambling. That was what he did with most of his pay, which left him unable to honor the debts that he had already accumulated. He and Dorothy then divorced amicably. She was given the sole custody of the children, who were still very young. She decided to pack their bags and go back home to Ohio while John remained in Miami. But he didn't stay there for long. His depression eventually overwhelmed him and he committed suicide a few weeks later. Just after his family had left, the news shocked his children. Billy in particular, even though his father had never shown him the least bit of affection. After spending some time in Columbus, Dorothy and her children moved to the small town of Lancaster, where she reconciled with her ex-husband, Shalmer Milligan, whom she later married. Life for the newly blended family was not without its consequences for Billy and other siblings. All three of them hated their stepfather, who was a wild man and misogynist, who thought that the only good use for a woman was in the kitchen or standing over an iron boat. What was even worse was that his attitude towards his stepchildren had also started to change in a questionable and unhealthy way. With Kathy Joe, the only girl in the family, Shalmer began to take a few too many liberties 
but he quickly got tired of her, especially when she started to defend herself and threatened to report him to the police. Exasperated, he set his sights on the young and delicate William, little Billy, his mother's pet, the one who liked to set the table, organize things, and whom his stepfather cruelly called little faggot. For years, Shalmer sexually assaulted him, while threatening him to never breathe a word to his mother because it would only make things worse and would cause him to be sent to a reform school and no one in the family would ever want to hear from him again. But the worst was that he even threatened to kill him and bury his body somewhere in the remote countryside. Terrorized like all other victims of abuse, Billy kept quiet and silently suffered the perversities of the man who could have been his substitute father. It has been suggested that this troubled and dramatic period in Billy's life coincided with the manifestation of his first alternate personalities, in particular Kristen, the three-year-old little girl who always seemed to be mad and who was something of a crybaby. Then there was also Sean, a little boy who shared Billy's games. Sean had the unique feature of being deaf and mute. He would eventually disappear to give way to other personalities as Milligan began to enter puberty. These dissociative problems gradually worsened and reached their climax once he became an adult without anyone in his immediate circle realizing the gravity of the situation. In the aftermath, his mother divorced Shalmer Milligan a second time and left the family home for good. For the first time in years, Billy could finally breathe a real sigh of relief. He would never see his stepfather again and never have to live under his threat. However, adolescence was marked by a long descent into hell, characterized by increased lack of attendance in school and pattern of shoplifting in supermarkets. Billy had started to become a very troubled boy who was quite withdrawn, who never spoke to anyone. He seemed to be living in a parallel world where voices in his head spoke to him and he grew further apart from his brother and sister. He only remained close to his mother, Dorothy. His petty delinquency got him sent to a reform school for the first time. The final blow occurred in 1975 when he was charged with armed robbery and sexual assault. For these two crimes, his first became acquainted with life behind bars where he was sent for a period of two years. He was released in 1977, but his criminal record would now include charges of sexual assault. A few days after leaving prison, he went to the campus parking lot of Ohio State University. There, he spotted three lively young girls who were packing the trunk of their car as they prepared to go home for the school break. Without hesitating for a second, Milligan swooped down on them and took them by surprise. Even before they were able to make a move to stop him, he sprayed them with a large amount of tear gas and all three girls were knocked out. He then grabbed the ignition keys and started the car with the three girls inside. He headed to his house. His alter ego, Alan, had taken charge of the entire operation. Initially held by captive for days in the basement and continually assaulted, Milligan's three prisoners soon realized that the person who came to the door of their jail to bring them their meals was not always the same. The intelligent and intuitive young women quickly deduced the nature of their captor's profound affliction. When he often seemed intractable and incredibly violent with them, there were also moments of respite, particularly when the personality of the little girl, predictably Christine, emerged. Additionally, during Milligan's trial, the victims recalled that Kristen, although timid at first, quickly proved to be gentle, playful, and cooperative and was one of the few personalities who didn't frighten them. That would not be the case with Alan, the heroin-using delinquent who took on Billy's traits and also began assaulting them. He turned out to be one who had the most profound effect on them during their frightening stay with Milligan. 
During Billy Milligan's trial, his lawyers unanimously pleaded insanity. At the end of the hearing in October 1977, he was found guilty of three aggravated charges, including kidnapping, use of a firearm, forcible confinement, and rape. Deemed incompatible and too dangerous for prison, he was sent to the Worthington Clinic, a high-security psychiatric facility which was a kind of asylum for irredeemable patients who suffered from a variety of serious pathologies and who had committed crimes in the past. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The law hoped that his stay would allow him with the sanity and opportunity for self-reflection. He stayed there for five months, enough time, however, to trigger the emergence of his other alter egos. What happened during his stay revealed Billy Milligan was suffering from something that was completely different from anything else that modern psychiatric medicine had ever known before. During his incarceration, his mental state was at its worst. The cold, impersonal, partitioned white walls of his cell caused him a deep and continuous anguish. Nothing seemed to alleviate his condition not the medicine that the nurses brought, which only turned him into a zombie, who was more dead than alive, or the session with the psychologist, who came every other day to check in on him, just like when he was in prison. Milligan feared that his alter egos would resurface and that he would not be able to control them. But until then, only Kristen, the little girl, Alan, the criminal painter, Sean, the deaf-mute, and Arthur, the cultivated Brit, from high society, were the only personalities that his doctors got to know but soon others would emerge. Each of them would have their own traits, gender, either male or female, age, past history, and personality, either good or bad. In all, there were ten personalities. For the moment, who divided Billy's mind and body up amongst themselves? In fact, Billy named them the officials. As a general rule, these officials all adhered to the same code of conduct. They made sure to always scrupulously respect rules such as practicing chastity, and advanced hygiene. They always try to keep busy and to have their minds constantly occupied by physical or artistic activities like dancing, painting, or music. They all protected one another, the adults looking after the children, the men after the women, and so on. Billy started to discuss these new entities when they weren't speaking outright for him with the psychologist who had come to visit him almost every day. One of these new alters, and the most remarkable, was undoubtedly Reagan Varaskovinik, when he emerged through Billy's voice, he spoke directly to the doctors and declared himself to be the leader of the officials. Reagan was an American, but Yugoslavian, and in fact had a strong Eastern European accent and spoke in broken English. He stated that he was Serbian since he spoke the language fluently and wrote perfectly in Cyrillic. 
He described himself as a fervent communist and party member, a former martial arts champion who won several medals during competitions in the USSR. He loved firearms and handled them expertly. He confessed that he had already been involved in shoplifting, but only did so to survive or to help Billy's other alter egos. He was very protective and almost possessive, where they were concerned much like a demanding father and said that he was capable of defending them in case of trouble. He took the most vulnerable ones like Kristen or Sean under his wings. Concerning the sexual assault of the three female students, Reagan explained in a lower octave, probably out of shame, that he had occasionally been a participant when he had consumed cannabis or when he had a few drinks. He often accused Alan of having corrupted him and inciting him into using drugs, whereas he had never even smoked before. Reagan emerged for the very first time during an interview organized by Dr. Dorothy Turner in which Billy's lawyers, prosecutor Bernie Yavich, and psychoanalyst Cornelia Wilbur were also in attendance. Dorothy Turner had a great deal of difficulty in persuading Yavich to participate because he didn't believe a word of this told tale. For the mature and seasoned prosecutor, who was used to seeing all kinds of criminals and sexual predators appear before him, Milligan was just another lunatic and psychopath who thought he was too clever to evade justice by inventing his far-fetched scenario about evil doppelgangers speaking like three-year-old infants. The prosecutor, as would later be proven, would radically change his mind following the interview, and it would be Reagan who would make him rethink his assumptions and preconceived ideas. Suddenly interrupting, Londoner author, who aware of having audience, liked to hear himself talk and captivated everyone's attention with his well-chosen and well-constructed words. Reagan appeared when Billy once again fell into an apparent trance. In front of everyone, the alter-ego proclaimed himself to be the assigned protector and spokesman for Billy as well for all the other officials. Furthermore, he would be the one who would first begin talking about the sexual assaults that Billy had suffered in childhood by his stepfather, Shalmer Milligan, that he had kept secret. Reagan, in his most exotic Slavic accent and in an increasingly severe and menacing deep voice, said to the lawyer and psychologist in front of him, You are responsible for everything that will happen. All the men need to get out now. Billy is afraid of men because of how his father hurt him. Then Kristen took over, sucking on her thumb, crying in pain, as if Billy had once again become, in the blink of an eye, the vulnerable child that he used to be, who was unable to face his stepfather's assaults. At the end of five disastrous months spending at Worthington's clinic, Billy was again transferred to another psychiatric facility. This was Athens State Hospital, which was not too isolating, but just as closely monitored. During his stay in the first institution, Milligan continuously complained about the hospital staff, maintaining that they were all not very involved in their work and that they willfully neglected him and sometimes even forgot to administer his daily doses of psychotropic drugs. At the new center, everything suddenly seemed more colorful, alive and joyful right down to the orderlies who were forbidden from wearing white uniforms lest they frighten the patients. At the Athens State Hospital, things started to change for the better. The doctors and orderlies took Billy under their wings and showed their trust in him by granting him permission to take walks on his own on the resident grounds, to walk with other patients, to watch TV whenever he wanted, and to play cards or other board games that he liked. The second stay at psychiatric facility, although beneficial and helpful at first, would slowly turn into a real hell. Worse than the first with the unexpected arrival of undesirables. Who were they? A second wave of alter egos? more powerful and cruel than ever, whose mission this time was the self-destruction 
of Billy's persona. Since there were 13 of them, they were even larger in number than the officials. Billy feared them more than the others, especially since they liked sharp and pointy objects such as scissors, knives, and razor blades. They often encouraged him to cut his veins with one of these objects, to climb upon the hospital's roof, to jump off and to tie his sheets into knots. Billy was so terrorized that he couldn't even talk about it with the hospital staff. The new arrivals waged a merciless war with the officials, led by Regent Vadaskovinik and his gang. Among the new doubles who had taken over Billy Milligan's mind and body, there was Phil, a young thug from Brooklyn who had previously been part of the mafia. Kevin, a former serial killer and sexual predator who was now involved in organized crime and who quickly became friends with Phil. Walter, an Australian hired gun. Stephen, or Stephen, an imposter who specialized in forging signatures. Lee, an evil prankster with a knack for getting into trouble, and also Adelana, one of the few adult female personalities, who was 19 and probably schizophrenic, since she could also be as despicable as she was harmless, sometimes even very sweet, with a heightened sense of good taste for the finer things. In fact, just like the chain-smoking Alan, she also adored painting and wanted to share her passion with everyone. She also knew how to cook and was excellent at organizing and interior decorating. Adelana fascinated everyone who studied the Milligan case due to her complexity and her uniqueness, which likely was accentuated by her lesbian inclinations and her excessive hatred for men and boys. In fact, she wanted to destroy them all because, in her opinion, they only cause trouble wherever they go. She never hid her love and attraction to girls and even sometimes urged Billy to stroke a nurse's hand or kiss her on the mouth. Billy would not go quite that far, however, which tended to frustrate Adelana. Despite her dark and troubled side, Adelana had a maternal relationship with the little ones who were more or less the favorite ones in this very special large family. The children were now represented by Kristen as well as David, Daniel, and Chris three other young boys who emerged at the same time as the undesirables and who acted as a kind of defense whenever painful memories from Billy's childhood resurfaced. All in all, there were 23 personalities trying to take over Billy Milligan's mind and body, which was the first in the incredible and strange annals of psychiatry. Billy felt more or less protected with the first 10 officials. But with the 13 new arrivals, every moment, every hour, and every minute of his life had become hell. In order to get a bit of respite, he slept and gave his protector personalities the freedom to do whatever they wanted. While the British author tried as best as he could to create harmony between the incoming and outgoing personalities, there were disruptive elements from the undesirables, particularly Phil and Kevin, who didn't see things from the same perspective and did absolutely the opposite of whatever author commanded them to do. They drank, did hard drugs, and partied sometimes even dragging Reagan along with them as they tried to rally him in their cause, although he never gave in. Meanwhile, Alan, the painter, made self-portraits, including a very famous one, which featured seven of Billy's personalities, all of whom were faithfully and clearly represented on a canvas. For those who had seen it, the painting was mesmerizing just by the sheer power of its details. The personalities' facial expressions, their stiffness, and the use of dark colors gave this unique and disturbing work all its inherent creepiness. On the canvas, the seven alter-egos displayed a different physical and ethnic appearance and style of clothing. In the center sat Tommy, Arthur, and Adelana, who wore a blue dress, sported dark hair, and who held in her arms little Kristen, a little blonde with a sullen face. Just behind them was Reagan, the Yugoslavian, tall, dark-haired, 
mustachioed and athletic as well as the rebellious yet casual Kevin, and finally Ellen himself seated at the edge of the painting, looking lost at the others ruthlessly scrutinizing the viewers. It was chilling and terrifying. Dr. David Cole still recalls the story concerning the painting made by his patient. In fact, he was the one who encouraged him to make it in the hopes that he would be freed from his entities once he had finally laid them down on a canvas. But to his dismay, Billy only painted seven of them. Tommy, Adelana, Reagan, Kristen, Arthur, Alan, and Kevin. When asked why the others had not been given the honor of being depicted, Billy's answer was very evasive. Maybe it was because if he had painted them all together on the same canvas, their faces would be completely modeled. Why then he had chosen these seven in particular? Were they his favorites or were they the most representative of his condition? Dr. Cole would never succeed in solving that mystery. It's worthwhile to note that Billy had previously destroyed two other canvases, only keeping the third, which became famous after his story was picked up by the American media. Dr. David Cole understood right from the outset that his patient was suffering from a disassociative personality disorder. The reason why he was able to hastily make such a diagnosis was because he had already dealt with this kind of person. The source of this condition was generally linked to the individual's childhood and it was often triggered by a violent emotional trauma such as rape, physical aggression, bullying, or hazing. When such a shock proves insurmountable, it is redistributed or projected into other personalities created out of thin air to alleviate the excess pain which might be too difficult for one person to handle. As a result of these new doubles, these alter egos, the individual then feels capable of overcoming the challenge and to move forward despite the mental anguish that it involves. With Billy and anyone else afflicted with this disorder, the intervention of me, of the individual and their ability to be lucid and fully aware of their actions is no longer required. It is up to the other personalities to take care of the housekeeping in the intricate chaos that is the human brain and to fight amongst each other to survive inside the soul of the person concerned. Author Daniel Keyes, who learned of Milligan's story through his colleague from the College of Science at the University of Ohio, decided to visit the bedside of the young man at Athens State Hospital. He was not quite sure what to expect, but if he were successful, he might write a book. His plan was to film video clips of Billy that would be completely improvised and without any preparation. Initially, the facility refused Daniel Key's access with the only explanation being that the patient's privacy should not be disclosed beyond the walls of the institution as a matter of confidentiality. Keyes, however, was not a man who could admit defeat. He even asked permission from Billy's mother, Dorothy Milligan, who accepted the involvement of this unyielding and unscrupulous man who cared so much about his project and who was ready to do anything to meet her son. After going through a lot of red tapes, the hospital finally consented and an initial meeting was set up for the following week with Daniel Keyes, who was nervous that Billy or one of his other personalities might change their mind at the last minute. Like everyone else had already met him, Keyes was initially surprised by Billy's seemingly youthful appearance. He was a strapping yet lovely boy who smiled and spoke openly without shying away. However, as the interview went on, things changed dramatically. He reacted himself and started sobbing quietly in a childlike voice which most likely belonged to Kristen. As Key's camera rolled, he held his breath completely captivated. Suddenly Milligan straightened up and he looked threatening as he stared at his interviewer. He mumbled something in a Slavic language that Keyes didn't understand, probably Russian or something similar. It was Reagan in the room now and he seemed very upset. What do you want with Billy? Billy is innocent. 
he shouldn't go back to court, he shouted in broken English. There was another pause. Billy seemed exhausted. He breathed with difficulty and his arms trembled. He held his head between his hands and swung back and forth. Then the British Arthur re-emerged and began to speak in English in a meticulous cultivated London accent. Please, can we have a bit of silence? What do you all have to shout like that? I think that we should first consult with Billy before making any major decisions. Certainly he's young, but that's not the reason to dismiss him. Through his tone, the timbre of his voice, the mastery of his foreign language, the perfect accent, the expression in his eyes and his body language, with every transformation, Billy was completely and wholly subsumed by whichever alter ego asserted itself. Then, yet another personality emerged. This time it was Samuel, a Jewish merchant from Brooklyn. He immediately began to speak in a strong Ashkenazi accent. Samuel was one of the most passive and least talkative alters when it came to speaking with strangers. He was very shy, and as a result, he had a habit of letting others walk all over him. As soon as he was aware that someone was listening to him, he started reciting passages from the Torah, then he began to make excuses for himself in a nasal voice that trailed off. He said that he had great love and fear of God, and that all others made him angry because they claimed to be atheists. He barely had time to continue before Alan, the drug addict painter, appeared and cut him off. Now, it was his turn. He openly mocked Daniel Keyes, somewhat old-fashioned appearances, and his huge eyeglasses. The writer would spend several months recording Billy and his 23 personalities, which included men, women, and children, painters, scientists, and thugs, depressives, jokers, and dangerous criminals. He would see them all. The collaboration between Billy and Daniel Keyes would go on for the next few months while Billy continued his long healing process under Dr. David Cole's care. After a few weeks, Keyes noted the arrival of Billy's 24th and final personality. This was one considered to be the one that tied them all together. It was naturally appropriate to name him the teacher. Keyes also had this to say before him. Before my very eyes, I saw the most eloquent, most intelligent, most charming, and the most fascinating person that I had ever met in my life. The professor would come to symbolize Milligan's complete or at least partial healing and would prove that a chapter in his life had closed for good. With the arrival of the 24th personality, Billy's recovery would be complete. In 1988, he would be able to leave the psychiatric facility where he had spent almost 12 years. Subsequently, he would be completely exonerated by the Ohio's prosecutor's office. After years of intense struggle against his disorder, he was found competent to resume a more or less normal life. He went back to live with his mother for a short time before heading to Los Angeles, California, where he moved in the early 90s. There, he would try to work in the area of film for a while and even started his own production company, The Stormy Life Productions, which proved unsuccessful due to a lack of funding. Billy would remain in contact with author Daniel Keyes for a long time. Keyes would dedicate a book to him based on their former collaboration while he was still a patient at Athens State Hospital. The book, entitled The Thousand and One Lives of Billy Milligan, depicted the shared experience of the author and the various personalities that he met in person accompanied by illustrations and sound clips. Keyes would carefully try to retranscribe all his closed-doors interviews as faithfully as possible. The book's release caused a terrible shock in the United States and upset a great many Americans who, as much they enjoyed dramatic and supernatural tales, would be confronted with the harsh reality of a genuine medical situation that was taking place right in their own backyard. 
Nevertheless, sales of the book were quite brisk both in the North America as well as in the Europe and would allow a wide audience to become familiar with the still unknown disorder that was shrouded in taboo and often associated with dementia. Billy Milligan died at the age of 59 on December 12, 2014, following a bout with cancer. Before his death, he had been staying in a rest home in Columbus, Ohio. His story, although unusual, was not the only one of its kind. In 1954, a young woman named Shirley Attrell Mason, who lived in New York, was studied by psychoanalyst Cornelia Wilbur for a similar multiple personality disorder. Just like Billy, Shirley had suffered sexual abuse during her childhood, a trauma that she eventually projected onto different personalities in an instinctive kind of self-protection. Her alter egos were always high-society women who were staid and elegant. Shirley Mason's story would be adapted for the cinema in 1976 in a film called Sybil, one year to the day before the Milligan case began in Ohio. Billy's story would also be adapted for the big screen in 2017 in a film entitled Split. British actor James McEnvoy would play the title role in a performance that was as daring as it was poignant. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.